And so, um, welcome everyone, and um, nearly completing another day of practice. We've been doing this for a while now, and um, it's very wonderful. And, um, you know, learning to, um, to sit with ourselves, in times that sometimes it's referred to sitting with the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And it's not easy to, um, to sit with ourselves. We learn it. It's said in the ages of old that shamans, that they travel with those that they serve with them to their hells and back. And it said, how can the shamans travel to the hells and back, those that they serve? And it comes from the shaman's own ability to travel into their own hell and find their way back. When we sit with ourselves, we get in touch with um, the mystery. And sometimes we get in touch with the monotony. Both can be there. The mystery and not this again, the breath. Talk about repetition. Boring. But nevertheless, um, the deeper mystery and question is, you know, um, what is all this? And I mentioned this the other night when I spoke. What, what is this? Who are we? So uh, Rod um, McClaver is a scientist. He writes, why do we exist? 50 trillion cells make up the body, and each of those cells in turn consists of atoms countless millions or billions of them depending on the function of the specific cell. In the atoms, they can consist mostly of empty space, of protons and neutrons surrounded by electrons, empty space just as the universe is mostly empty space. The human body, this entity of mostly empty space, is space held together space unified even for a little while by a life force. The atoms existed before the human body and they'll be here after the life is gone. And in the meantime, in this short interval, the atoms are held together by this indescribable and unknowable force of empty space. Tara Brock, she writes that the same universal force of attention that gathers atoms, attraction, the same universal force that attracts, I'm sorry, I'll read it one more time, the same universal force at attraction that gathers atoms into molecules and holds solar systems spinning in galaxies also joins sperm with eggs and people together in communities. <clears throat> so this journey is this journey of who am I and this wondering of what, what is all this? And yet at times, um, we may not even notice. And um, here, here's something from the year 399 AD. That's a long time ago. <laughs> 399, written by St. Augustine. He says, people travel to wonder at the height of the mountains and at the huge waves of the seas. People wonder at the long courses of the rivers at the vast compass of the ocean, 
People wonder at the circular motion of the stars and then they walk right past themselves without ever wondering. Walking right past themselves without ever wondering. This was written in the year 399. Well, Siddhartha Gautama who later became the Buddha, he did begin to wonder at the age of 29, as I shared with you, but what is this? What is this? And you can also say the people that come to mindfulness-based stress reduction, other mindfulness-based approaches, interventions, you know, they're also coming here for deeper things. How do I live with the stress I'm dealing with or pain or the illness, life conditions, how I'm hard on myself, there's, you know, the many different ways and it sources from what is this and how am I going to deal with this human condition? They come because of this human condition. We're trying to find our place in a world that continues to change and has an ownerless quality to things. Saki mentioned last night about um, the three marks and that were very relevant during the times of the Buddha and very relevant in today's times that, that there is stress or challenges, suffering in life, there's this sense of constancy, everything is changing and the sense of non-self or the ownerless nature of things or the sense of identity. I loved how Saki spoke about you know this identity and this identification of who I am. I'm Bob and I do this and that and at some point um, I'm not going to be doing this and that. And who is this Bob anyways? And actually John Kabat-Zinn, he, <laughs> in a way that only John can do from maybe his New York Upbringing, he had his own uh, rendering of the three marks of existence. So again, it's suffering, impermanence, and non-self. And John says for suffering, he simply says, shit happens. <laughs> and as far as the impermanent nature of things, he says, things change. <laughs> and as far as the non-self, he says, don't take it personally. So I, I love that as a, just a, that's a, a, a rendering that we all can relate to. Shit does indeed happen. It's been happening here. Sometimes I actually think about meditation retreats, another name for them, I could call them a shit accelerator. <laughs> you know, on the outside, it looks really nice, pastoral. It's, it's, it's like beautiful setting. But in the inside, it's a cooker, and the shit is flying everywhere. <laughs> It happens. Things change. Don't take it personally. How the heck do you not take it personally? Because it's really funny, because in this practice, there's a certain element that is incredibly personal. And it is also incredibly impersonal. And if we try to do a spiritual bypass, let's just bypass the story and the construction, um, you know, and just try to all be light, um, it's not going to be a lot of wisdom there. So there's balances of really serving and looking at integrating the personal stories and the material that we live with and also potentially beginning to uh, take ourselves so seriously. I like this definition of the ownerless nature of things. And actually even in the, the canonical literature, the Buddha says if there was an owner, you could say, don't age. Don't get sick. Don't die. But you know, like you see my you see my hair? You don't see it. You know why? Because it fell out. And I did not give an invitation to my scalp to have my hair fall out. The body just did it. I have a prostate gland that is getting larger. It's not cancer, but it's causing some urinary retention. I have to take some medicine for it. I did not ask my prostate to get bigger. It just did it. No invitation. No invitation. There's a certain ownerless quality to the body. You may say go left, but the body will stay here or go right. And you know, and it seems like we got everything under control until you have a stroke and you can't even, you know, zip down your zipper. 
And so it's, there's, a, there's an ownerless quality that's um, very humbling. And of course, we pride ourselves in our Western culture. Descartes declares, I think, therefore I am. So this teaching of non-self rubs up against our name, our status, our roles. It's actually un-American. And, you know, there's like this, like, you know, where it's about self. It's mysterious. And I love this is from Lewis Carroll. This is from Alice in Wonderland. So the caterpillar and Alice looked at each other for some time in silence. And at last the caterpillar took the hookah out of its mouth and addressed her in a languid and sleepy voice. Who are you? said the caterpillar. This was not an encouraging opening for conversation. Alice replied rather shyly, I, 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 I hardly know, sir, just at present. At least I know who I was when I got up this morning, but I think I must have changed several times since then. What do you mean by that, said the caterpillar sternly. Explain yourself. Alice said, I can't explain myself because I'm not myself, you say. I'm not myself, you see. And we begin to see that in our lives. You know, I was a high school student. I was a teenager. I was in the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and Things are changing. Things are changing. Our roles get confronted. And um, Yasaki touched a tender spot in my heart last night. Um, my wife and I, our two children, are, we're about to become empty nesters. You, you hit it. You hit my current little nerve yesterday, and yeah, it's like it's huge. Like, who's gonna stay up late at night with me watching science fiction? <laughs> and or like, you know, like all these identifications is um, you know, the kids at home, and I'm also incredibly grateful. This is what they need to do is to go out onto the grand tour into life. But these roles that I can see, I'm. Clinging, not only clinging, just tying a rope and a hundred million times on trying to keep it as it is, but it slips sliding away. It's also interesting, as you know, Saki referred that, that, that the scientists they they can't find an eye when you look in the brain. So this is from the Buddha's brain, and Rick Hansen and Richard Mendius they say, from a neurological standpoint. The everyday feeling of being a unified self is an utter illusion. The apparently coherent and solid I is actually built from many subsystems and many sub-subsystems over the course of development with no fixed center. And the fundamental sense that there is a subject of experience is a fabrication. They go on. You think about this body. The body makes a new stomach every five days, a new liver every six weeks, replaces new head hair every two to five years if you have it. <laughs> the body grows a new skin once a month. The body replaces a skeleton every seven years. 50,000 of the cells in your body will die and be replaced with new cells, all while you listen to me read this one sentence. Radioactive isotype studies show that the body replaces 98% of its atoms in less than one year. So in other words, at any given moment, the parts of the body are appearing and disappearing because they are atoms. So if you think you are your physical body, which body are you talking about? The body you have today is not the same as yesterday.
And actually, when you think about the body, more of uh, science these days is saying that actually, well, we, we call ourselves human beings, but the, the word really is we're a human biome because it's actually about 10% human and about 90% organisms that actually live in the body. And actually, on one square inch of skin, 32 million bacteria live on it. <laughs> and so, you know, there's actually a teaching in, in the Dharma. It's called the living with the many. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's very interesting from over many thousands of years ago, there was some knowledge of the living with the many. But we, with this human being, you know, and it's a good thing that these organisms are working together because otherwise uh, we would not be here to talk about it. So this whole thing about non-self, it is difficult for many of us to understand and to relate to, and it can be mysterious. And so these notions of, well, the, the ownerless nature is something we relate to. And I love Saki's rendering of like identity and how this identity is not fixed and it constantly changes. And another way that I want to just have us to, to, to look at it from a, from a psychological standpoint, um, and it, it and actually um, it points to one of the descriptors. Now the Buddha, that word literally means the awakened one, but there's other connotations that's attributed to him, and one of them is, is that um, experienced the unconditioned, and there's many different renderings of what unconditioned means, and that might be part of another talk and another time, but I'm going to just take one facet of the unconditioned to speak about here tonight. And so simply saying, if there's a statement pointing that there's an experience of the unconditioned, it points back to that there must have been some conditioning. In order to be unconditioned, there's got to be conditioning. And so from a psychological point of view, and, and of course in modern psychology, we talk about the narrative-based self. There's definitions of who I think I am that's built upon our beliefs, our stories. And of course, over time, these stories become more and more solidified and defined, and this is just who I am. And I love this as a definition of, like, with the, with the Buddha's awakening, is that experiencing unconditioned is posing the possibility that broke through the conditioning of the limited definitions of who it is that we think we are. There's a very beautiful reading here that um, speaks about this possibility. It's by Margaret Wheatley. And she writes, I know that we notice what we notice, because of who we are. And we create ourselves by what we choose to notice. And once this work of self-authorship has begun, we inhabit the world we've created. We self-seal. And we don't notice anything except those things that confirm what we already think about who we already are. When we succeed, in moving outside of our normal processes of self-reference and can look upon ourselves with self-awareness, then we have a chance at changing. We can break the seal. We can notice something new. When we succeed in moving outside of our normal processes of self-reference and can look upon ourselves with self-awareness, we have a chance at changing, we can begin to break the seal. This is a very important pointing. This thing of awareness helps us to see where it is that we are. And we all have had conditioning since we were a, a little kid, an infant. There's been conditioning. There's even theorists that talk about even in the birth canal when we're being birthed and we're going through this small hole. Everything's just peachy, rosy, creamy, but we're being pushed out. And some of us in that, that laborious moment just collapse into to the, this overwhelming feeling. Some of us are fighting our way and others of us kind of just go with it. And, and these are impressions and, of course, impressions upon impressions and, of course, whatever's going on prenatally. The, I have a dear friend of mine 
she's actually a, a Dharma teacher at Spirit Rock, and she um, she was in utero in her mama, in her belly, and her dad was in World War II, and he was killed about three or four months before she was born, and her mother collapsed, just shut down. And this has been like a huge internal process within her with her life like like these chemicals exchanging chemicals and the and so I just want to say that from earliest of ages we are susceptible to these conditionings powerful powerful conditionings you know and some of these conditionings can be quite supportive when you're told day in and day out um, you're being supported to, in your own sovereignty and trust and developing confidence and and helping to find your way in life and 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 support of knowing that you are a beautiful being and of course there's that wide spectrum to horrible abuse. We each have our stories that we work with in our lives and you know a very dear friend of mine. He, growing up, was very tall and very clumsy and lived in a small house. And his dad was a single dad because his, his mom had committed suicide, his wife. I'm sorry, it's, it's the father's wife, my friend's mother, committed suicide. And it was an intense growing up. He was a former, the father was a former submarine commander. And so he, he gave my friend because he was tall and clumsy, a nickname. Now, you've heard of um, the children's story about King Midas and everything you touch turns to gold. Yeah, you've heard that story? Yeah. King Midas, everything you touch turns to gold. Well, his nickname was King Minus. Everything you touch breaks. That's kind of like an unpleasant feeling tone right in the gut, isn't it? Imagine being told that. This fortunately a good end to this story is that through a lot of deep inner work he you know discovered his own sovereignty if you will his own heart and not only has become very successful in the world but more importantly in his heart but the things that sometimes we have been told can be scarring I, I remember actually just like a couple of years ago I kind of re I remembered Uncle Sidney who was a real case. Um, when I was a little kid, I liked peanuts, and I used to get my hand and go into the bowl and get some peanuts, and he would kind of make this little sly joke, here comes the claw, here comes the claw. What's the claw? What's a claw? What the heck is that? Even to this day, I could say there's still little parts of me. The claw. Is get like and and, and it, 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 you know to me it was, it was shaming when I look at it. It, it doesn't have dignity. Mm. Oh, you're hungry. Would you like to have some food? There was something that it, it was it was painful to like. Oh wow. But sometimes the things we say, of course, unknowingly, can cause harm. And sometimes knowingly, due to our own unawareness, due to our own woundedness in our own life, we don't know any better. I remember one time in an MBSR class, we were going around a circle. It was a four or five weeks in, and you know, a woman probably in her 50s or 60s were going around the circle, and somehow the conversation shifted to like how hard we on ourselves. And then she kind of raised her hand and said, "Well, you know, I want to tell you all something. There has not been one day in my entire adult life that I don't silently say to myself, I'm an asshole." And then another person like said, well, I don't call myself that, but I call myself a dummy. And another one said, well, I don't call myself that, I call myself stupid. And it's amazing if, you, if we begin to pay attention to the little insidious little messages that we're telling ourselves that we won't amount to anything. And particularly if we're brought up in ways that you're not going to be pretty, you're not smarter. I remember my parents saying, your brother's pretty smart with uh, with money, so you'll be okay. Because the, the implication, <laughs> you know, I am a, a meditation teacher, so, you know, he's definitely not in the big income bracket here. But don't worry, Barry will be there. The things that we're told, the things that we're told, 
they have an impact, a huge impact on this growing, uh, you know, sense of self and definitions of who we think we are. And it almost feels like like the first 50 years we finally individuate and then we see who it is that we've individuated into. <laughs> or if it's not 50, 30, whatever it is, 20. But then we see what it is that we've individuated into and then the rest of our life is untangling the tangle of that individuation. Like, oh my gosh. <laughs> This, so we can't bypass this. This idea that the spiritual path is to somehow bypass this is, is not helpful information. We, we need to dive into the personal to know the impersonal, if you will, for lack of a better word. This work on ourselves is huge. When I begin to become mindful of these lenses or these definitions of how I see myself and how I define who it is that I am, this is this what Margaret Wheatley's pointing to this when we get out of self-reference and move to self-awareness we have a chance then to see where it is that we are and begin to make some positive oh wow I've been going around with this belief that 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 I'm not a good writer but actually wait a minute I'm actually all right or I have this belief that I won't amount to anything but you know actually I've done all right like these different stories that we have told ourselves that we believed that have enslaved us So I love um, <clears throat> Antonio Machado, a Spanish poet. He has this beautiful three-line verse. I may have already recited it here, but it's worthy hearing a million times. But he says, some say it's good to live. And others say it's better to dream. But best of all, my friend, is to awaken. Best of all, my friend, is to awaken. When we awaken into what's here, we have a chance of growing. We awaken into becoming more and more real. From Marjorie Williams and the Velveteen Rabbit, the rabbit asked one day, what's real? And the skin horse said, real isn't how you're made. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long time, not just plays with you, but really, really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt, asked the rabbit. Yes, sometimes it does, said the skin horse. But when you're real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once or bit by bit, asked the rabbit. It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. To become real takes a long time. And that's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easy or who have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off. <laughs> and your eyes drop out. And you get loose in the joints and you look very, very shabby. <laughs> but those things don't matter at all because once you're real, you can't be ugly, except the people who don't understand. Once you're real, you can't be unreal again. It lasts for always. Very beautiful wisdom of the Velveteen Rabbit. So may, you, um, may we be, as Saki and I have been saying so many times, this sense of the quality of gentleness with the practice. And, you know, we speak about uh, in that re reading I read earlier by Bob Sharples, the subtle aggression of self-improvement that wraps our lives in a knot. And actually, um, sometimes it's not subtle. It's violent. So really, if there's one thing that I would love to just share with, invite with all of you, Maybe this is a time to make a radical change in how we hold our practice, that it can be actually housed with love. That perhaps wrapping our lives in a knot is really not serving. And when we say holding it with love, we're not saying that you don't have to make any effort. There's a wise effort that's wise and compassionate. It doesn't mean you know, complacency or no effort. But how we hold the practice, 
you know, let's understand that the meditation practice is about you. It's not about the breath. And we use the breath and the different objects to get to know the workings of our own mind and body. So how we work with the practice is so important. And, you know, that beautiful reading from the, the Christian mystic that, you know, when you can perceive the malady, the cure begins. So the, the importance of awareness, when I notice that I'm being hard on myself, that moment that I notice the hardness, I can begin to soften because now I'm aware of it. Now there's awareness rather than self-reference. That's why even my beloved meditation teacher, Tampu Luciero, I loved how he taught the mindfulness practice and he would have these reframes and it was just so benevolent and kind. He says, like, if you know that greed is arising or hatred is arising or ignorance is arising or if you know that they're arising and no meaning K-N-O-W, if you know that they're arising, you're gaining knowledge. That was his teaching. If you, He wasn't saying you should not have greed, hatred, and ignorance. He's saying if you know that it's arising, you're gaining knowledge. If you don't know, then you're accumulating more ignorance. So the emphasis was on the knowing. So I love that. It was just such a kind way of holding it because sometimes what comes up us is our shame, our, our embarrassment, our guilt. And, and so the, in those teachings, like if we are aware of this, if we know it, if we acknowledge it, this knowing will bring us knowledge. He once said to me, Who's worse, someone that is killing people left and right and they know that they're killing, or someone that doesn't know and just killing? And so I said, well, you know, the worst one is um, is the person that knows. They should know better. He said, well, actually, the one that's better is the one that knows, because if they know better, then one day they'll stop, where the one that doesn't know will go on forever. So this that sense of the knowing. The knowing brings us knowledge. This is why awareness is such an incredible gift. It's bringing us knowledge. No matter what it is, we're not making censorship to things. We're acknowledging and naming, knowing what's here to be known. To be known. The teachings that are within mindfulness-based stress reduction and the various approaches are all pointing to the same thing as well. All stemming from these foundations of mindfulness. And in this retreat, we've been systematically going through the foundations, the mindfulness of the body, the mindfulness of feeling tones, the mindfulness of mind states. And then we extrapolate, if you will, from the fourth foundation. These are the teachings, the dharmas, like how to work with the practice, working with the five hindrances, awakening factors that help bring investigation and knowledge into suffering, its causes, and so forth. And so we're, we're using these practices and mindfulness approaches to penetrate these stories that we tell ourselves that potentially we have become enslaved by. Now some of you might be wondering, so where's the body scan in the four foundations of mindfulness? Where's the sitting meditation in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness? And so we, these practices have been drawn from these foundations and offered in the way that we uh, practice them. So, for example, the body scan is a combination. The reason that I often like to teach is, is, first of all, it's a physical practice of sensing and feeling into the body, but then also being aware of the different tones and the different mind states. It's almost three-dimensional at times because... Our history is here inside our body. Our body is our storehouse of all of our experiences. The body scan is a very powerful practice, beginning with the left foot, working way up to the top of the head. Our history is here inside our bodies. We go into the body. Who knows what arises? And I sometimes like to give myself as an example, because as we know, the body scan begins with the left foot. And some of us might think, the left foot, what's the left foot got to do with anything? But for a guy like me, in 1996, I contracted flesh-eating bacteria, or necrotic fasciitis, on top of my left foot, and it went systemic, and I almost went into septic shock, 
kidney failure, respiratory arrest. And um, fortunately, I can tell you the story, and I was facing potentially an amputation of my left leg. Fortunately, I have my leg. So my left foot has a big whopping scar on it, as if I dipped into death and came back out and got a nice big scar to show. And actually, anyone at the end of the retreat wants to see my scar, I'm happy to show it to you. <laughs> but like for me, going into the left foot, that's got some activity there. That's a place I nearly died. We don't know in this body, this body, the history is here inside our body. A body is our storehouse. This is from a poem from uh, Martha Elliott. Our history is here inside our body. Our body is our storehouse. Now, we look at the body scan. So when you look at the first foundation of mindfulness, there's six distinct practices. We're very familiar with the first three. Mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness of the bodily postures, mindfulness in the day-to-day -day activities. And the latter three are less known, and but they are one of the practices is actually I call this particular practice the grandmother of all body scans. It's called the 32 parts of the body meditation. And then there is the practice of meditation on the elements, solids, liquids, motion, and temperature. Then an actual very graphic meditation on the mindfulness of death in the different stages of decomposition from the first day of death until the body turns to dust. Some of us may ask, why would that be here? And maybe I mentioned earlier that this is Hindu proverb, everyone thinks everyone else is going to die but not me. And I'm that type of person, so maybe by sitting by a dead body and seeing actually turn to dust and going through the different stages of decomposition, I might get it. Now some of you might wonder, so I mentioned the 32 parts of the body meditation and I'm going to try to control myself because I'm totally into this practice. Because <laughs> we could just go for days. But you might be wondering, well, what are the parts? So I have to tell you. And there's 20 solid parts and 12 liquid. And the tension behind this practice is these parts are like ambassadors. There's way more, of course, than 32 parts. But they're bringing us into the gateways of the body, which is what the body scan does. So the 32 parts are head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, large intestine, small intestine, stomach, feces, brain, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, saliva, mucus, oil of the joints, and urine. I can do it backwards too if you like. <laughs> so... This is just to give you a little bit of a taste, but this is a very powerful practice of moving into the body. And we practice it in the same way, evoking what arises physically, <laughs> mentally, emotionally. Our history is here inside our body. It's an interesting arrangement. I like that one of next to feces is the brain. Yeah. But maybe the, 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 new, the, the second brain is down here. The science is talking about it. The, 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 the nervous system within the digestion. But it's interesting, you know, it takes that loop from uh, flesh, sinews, bone, bone marrow, kidneys. And so how does it go from bone marrow to kidneys? When you think about bone marrow, it's about blood formation, and kidneys is about blood purification. So it's kind of interesting, the arrangement. But that's the mother of all body scans. And the sitting meditation, so it's a very interesting practice. It's made of five different objects. The breath, sensations, sounds, mind states, choiceless awareness. And so this is a practice. These five different objects are taken from each of these foundations. There's physical ones, there's mental ones, and finally this practice of choiceless awareness. So it, they're drawn from the foundations of mindfulness. And I think it's a very clever arrangement that John put together with this uh, sitting meditation of these five objects. And, to me, it's like no matter where I bring my attention to, whether it's the breath, sensations, sounds, states of mind, and then culminating with this open awareness or choiceless awareness, it's pointing to change, pointing to this ownerless nature of things. And perhaps also it's pointing, if indeed we are experiencing directly our senses and states of mind that are changing, perhaps this is informing us. Maybe we can begin to learn how to go with the flow of life rather than this resistance that is, in some ways, the deep causes of all of our 
suffering, is this resistance to the way things are. So it's a very interesting compilation of these objects that's beginning no matter where we bring attention to experiencing the changing nature of things. And potentially with the mind states to see that, you know, have I defined myself? I'm an anxious person. Then we see that anxiety here is like a weather system. It arises and it passes. And all of a sudden there's a system with some calmness and perhaps this type of practice begins to disengage these solidified beliefs. We have sometimes people in our classes, and I know you've all experienced this, where a person will say, I just realized I'm not my thoughts. I didn't give any big teaching on anatta and no self. It was from being in the practice that these discoveries are being made. So awareness, mindfulness is a liberative practice that can transform the heart and these definitions of who I think I am. This is a very haunting reading from Carl Jung. He says that I feed the hungry and I forgive an insult and I've learned to love my enemies. And these are great virtues. But what if I should discover that the poorest of the beggars and the most impudent of the offenders are all within me? And that I stand in the need of the alms of my own kindness? And that I myself am the enemy who must be loved? That I myself am the enemy who must be loved? practice is about inviting the possibility that we can begin to make greater peace with ourselves and perhaps these stories that we've told ourselves are limited. There's possibilities of meeting ourselves in a more loving way. We can begin to break that self-seal. As we become more mindful, we naturally become more sensitive. That's been my experience through the years. Become that much more sensitive to my own pain and to that of others' pain. And for me, it's really come down to like, how can I cause the least harm possible to myself and to others with the understanding that it may be fully impossible to do no harm? And how can I begin to practice with the least harm and not blame myself. The heart naturally begins to open as we become more mindful and aware. The heart begins to break open with compassion. Miller Williams, he writes, have compassion for everyone you meet, even if they don't want it. What seems to be conceit or bad manners or, or cynicism is always a sign of things no ears have heard and no eyes have seen. You do not know what wars are going on way down there where the spirit meets the bone, where no eyes have seen, no ears have heard. That's such a powerful statement. You don't know what's going on way down there where the spirit meets the bone. Perhaps we could never know. The importance to heal in our lives is so important. And, you know, one of my uh, really great teachers in my life is my mother-in-law. Her name was Sharm. She is a very simple and kind person. She wasn't a meditator. She was a very faithful in the, in the Christian faith, but didn't go to church hardly, but just a really amazing person. And in her life, she had a lot of hard times. Mother that was really mean to her, a husband that betrayed her a number of times, ultimately left. And I, I you know, knew her for some years and uh, till, till she died. And, you know, I got to be around her a lot. And she had this incredible capacity 
that she forgave everyone. She didn't hold a grudge. She has every reason to hold a lot of grudges, a lot of resentment. There's been a lot of pain. And she was like this this mother, like, and it was real. It wasn't this plastic spiritual bypass. She is even, not only had she forgiven, but she was even concerned for her ex's welfare. To me, she gets a PhD in living, and if, if I could die on my deathbed without resentment in my heart, I think that'd be a good thing. That's what I aspire, you know? Like, like it's, it's, you know, to live with, without resentment. Like when you think of like when we're in a place of feeling a lot of resentment, it's, it's hardening this heart. So this is a very powerful practice to cultivate reconciliation. So I wouldn't even use the word forgiveness right now. But the reconciliation can work in three very important ways, and the first is to ourselves. These stories that we've told ourselves, I'm deficient, I'm inadequate, I'm not smart, and whatever, these stories that have enslaved us, made us feel small, and of course the things that we've done in our lives, that may there be some reconciliation here. You know, it's very interesting with hindsight wisdom, kind of like looking in the rearview mirror, we can kind of see back and get greater understanding of where we were then. Like, no wonder I was going through what I was going through when I look at what I was living with, the unawareness, the woundedness. And when you think right about it, and I think this is a fairly accurate truth, is that since your conception... You've done a lot of things since your conception, right? (laughs) And that was the beginning, that explosion, conception. And you've done a lot of things. And we're meeting here right now, in this moment. Right? That cannot be denied. You're not not here. You are here. (laughs) And one way to hold it is everything that I've done in my life since my conception has led me into this moment. Here I am now sitting in a meditation retreat. I'm working with my shit full time. I'm trying to heal my heart big time. I'm learning how to maybe not try so hard. Trying to befriend. Everything that we have done has led us into this moment. Can we open into that? It's all been a part of what brought us here. Even the most terrible things that we think that we've done, the places of shame that we won't even admit to you, never mind barely even to myself, and the joys and the sorrows, they've all led us into this moment. You're here. You're here. Can there be that wise understanding it's all been a part of us getting here? May there be reconciliation. Take a breath in and a breath out with that one. It's all led us to this moment. You're here. That long, strange trip that we've been on from the Grateful Dead, it's led us to this moment. The good, the bad, the ugly. Is there a way that we can begin to open into that truth and make some peace within our hearts? Here we're practicing. We want to grow in wisdom and compassion. Can we allow that in? It's all been a part. The reconciliation continues for ourselves. All that we've done has led us into this moment. And of course, when we look back in our lives, there's been times that we've hurt others. Knowingly, unknowingly. Sometimes out of our fear, sometimes to protect ourselves, sometimes because we just were so depleted. I mean, the so many different reasons of at times we've hurt another.
may there be some time to make some reconciliation for those that you've hurt. Maybe that hindsight wisdom, that understanding of where you were then, what you were living with. Like, of course, how, how could it have been any other way? So this the contemplation of reflect, like, how could it have been any other way due to where I was in my life? Now, in this perspective, sitting here, looking back, the greater understanding. May there be reconciliation to those I've hurt. And then lastly, very difficult, the reconciliation for those that have hurt you. I'm not saying forgive. That may or may not come later. But perhaps some understanding, just as you are beginning to understand the times that you've hurt another, that came from your own unawareness and own fears and so forth, perhaps is the understanding, of course, that those that hurt you, that came from their unawareness and their fears, their woundedness. least it's something perhaps to begin with, to reflect upon. And also to reflect upon, this gets more personal, reflecting upon when one or when I'm harboring resentment and grudges, ill will, how painful it is in my own heart. My heart is hardened. I might be projecting out, you've screwed me over, you've hurt me, but meanwhile, I am suffering. And as we're growing in this greater sense of understanding, compassion for ourselves, can we begin to, if we're walking around with an arrow in our leg, maybe it can, like, and it hurts, I can begin to take it out. This harboring of resentment hardens the heart. And what I like about this invitation is you don't necessarily have to go forgive that other person, but it's because I care enough about me. I can't live with this poison anymore in my heart. A gesture beginning to neutralize the harborings of resentment. I find these practices incredibly healing. To live with a heart more wider open the softening of the hardness, coldness, the tightness, the healing for ourselves, the times we've been hard on ourselves, the reconciliation to those that I've hurt, the reconciliation for those that have hurt me, that we can begin to make amends within our practice through deeper insight and understanding, reconciliation, befriending this heart. And it's amazing in our mindfulness stress reduction classes that even though we don't actually explicitly teach the meditation on loving kindness till the day long, when a person calls up and they get a call back or when they come to the intro, they're greeted in that field of friendliness, of genuineness, of respect, of kindness. And as the classes unfold is that same sense within the teacher creating in the space of safety, of respect, of empathy. The field of friendliness is cultivated without maybe explicitly talking about the practice of loving kindness, but finally when it's explicitly offered in the sixth week or during the day long, I should say, people are already familiar with that field of the heart, can receive it. Because loving-kindness is a powerful practice. And in my early years of practicing it, I used to call it the hating-kindness meditation. Because it just brought up all my shit in spades. All the places I was holding back that I learned later are the exact places I need to bring attention to. That they were the gateways into my heart. So we're coming close to the end here. And... Um, to give you a little feel about loving kindness, some of you may know the story of its origin and some of you may not, so I'm going to tell you a story. 
so this was back during the Buddhist time, and there was a group of monks that wanted to go to a very remote and uh, deep forest to practice meditation. And so they bid farewell to the Buddha, and they went off to practice for a few months. And when they got to the forest, it was a fabulous place. It was quiet. It was just a great place for meditators. And what they didn't know was that in the forest, and this is again part of the, the mythology within Buddhism, but it is said that there was uh, tree spirits that lived in the trees there, and it was their forest. And they were fine at first with the monks hanging out there. But then when they saw that they weren't leaving, they were getting a bit annoyed. <laughs> and like all of a sudden, like a water bowl would be emptied and a fire that was lit would somehow the water got on it and put it out. Like there'd be kind of like some mischievous things going on and the monks, huh, I don't know what's going on here. But they said, you know, just note it and let's continue meditating. <laughs> <laughs> so these tree spirit guys got pissed off and they had the magical capabilities to transform their luminous, beautiful bodies into very scary looking creatures. And they also had the ability they had like smells that were like sandalwood, but they could change it because of their magical powers into a stinking stench. And then their voice that was like a melody of, of divine quality, they could transform it into howls and screeches that were terrifying. Well, in no time, those monks fled the forest. It was haunted. This is not a good place. And so they went back, and the Buddha saw them and says, hey, you, you guys are back a little bit sooner. I thought you were going to be away for a few months. And so then they explained uh, what had happened. And the Buddha said, I want you to go back there, and I'm going to give you a meditation to practice with every step of the way back. And so they turned around, and they began practicing the loving-kindness meditation, extending this sense of friendliness, that which softens the hardened heart, the qualities of friendliness to those that are tall or short, born or yet to be born, to all living beings here and everywhere. This beautiful phrases out of this loving kindness sutta. And they just walked each step of the way back, just this sense of love and the friendliness. And they started walking towards the forest and then the tree spirits looking out ahead saw the retinue of monks coming back and they were like, I, I, they're coming back. <laughs> Boom, they immediately transformed themselves even to more ghastly looking appearances and a stench that could knock anyone over and screeches that could break glass and they got ready to pounce those monks once and for all. They will never come back again. And so they were getting ready and the monks, one step at a time, lifting, moving, placing, <laughs> loving kindness to all beings here and everywhere, above and below and all around, in all directions, may all beings be at ease. And that energy, just like, the, like a soft wind, blew into the forest. And so you have to get the feeling tone of that. Such, <laughs> such a benevolence, such a kindness, mm. such a softness. And without these tree spirits even talking to one another, they instantly, receiving this, transform themselves back into the luminous appearances, sweet smells, beautiful voice. Without talking to one another, some started sweeping the paths. Others gathered water, some lit a fire, and they greeted these monks. They were so taken with that feeling of love. You know, may you never underestimate the powers of love. Even in the darkest of the night, if you light a candle, a single candle, that illumination dispels the darkness around it. And so to love is so powerful, it dispels fear, dispels pain dispels that sense of separation, disconnection, isolation. This is the power of love. So these 
tree spirits were so enamored with, with these monks, they wanted to practice with them. And so the monks started teaching them meditation and they all started practicing. And sometimes at the end of some of these Buddhist stories, uh, it ends with, and they all got enlightened and they all lived happily ever after. <laughs> That's a nice story. <laughs> they all lived happily ever after. Such is the powers of love. May we never underestimate the powers of love. So let's just sit for a few moments and um, we'll just take that in, that, that feeling that I, I know you're experiencing. Just feeling into the heart and just whatever's there. May there be ease, may there be peace. I want to say that um, in my years um, spent living with these monks, you know, I, I learned a lot, but probably what I received the most was like a legacy of kindness. And it's being, it was like passed for generations through the forest. These legacies of kindness. Stephen said, I might have mentioned it earlier, like when the Buddha died, Ananda was his attendant. He was just crying and saying he was just so kind. He was just so kind. So these are great teachings of kindness. So I'll just end with a poem called Kindness that I know some of you know. That's an exquisitely beautiful poem from Naomi Shiap Nye. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things and feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. And what you held in your hand and what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscapes can be between the regions of kindness and how you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop and the passengers eating corn and chicken will steer out their windows forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where an Indian in a white poncho lies dead on the side of the road, and you must see how this could be you, and how that he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. And you must wake up with sorrow. And you must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of that cloth. And then it's only kindness that makes sense anymore. It's only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to gaze at the bread. It's only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for. And then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. And then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. May all beings discover the gateways into the hearts. May there be peace.
walking and I kindly asked the bell ringer to maybe ring the bell at um, five, five after nine, so we'll have a little bit more balanced time between the walking and the sitting. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.